2: Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books and Sociology, a uh, channel on the New Books Network. My name is Michael Johnston, and I have Brown from De, uh, De Montfort University in the uh, in the UK, and I also have Virginia Burnt from Texas A&M International University today to speak about Body Arts, published by uh, Emerald Publishing just this year in 2023. Thank you for joining me. Thank you thank for you having So to start off with I would I would like to know what brought you uh, to writing this book uh, what was so interesting to you about body arts that made you say huh
1: I want to write a book about that Well maybe I'll kick off with this uh, because I suppose I had the initial idea. I've been teaching a variety of social science subjects sociology, psychology. I've taught trainee nurses and probation officers and social workers and even trainee police officers occasionally for a long time. Uh, So I've always been interested in what people do, what people think they're doing. In recent years, uh, I've been working on the role of the arts and humanities in fostering health, well-being, recovery. and We've been lucky enough to get some money from research councils to, to study this and my friend and colleague Paul Crawford was editing this series for Emerald Publishing about the arts and health and we had to conversation. why don't you do something about body art because um I don't know if you can make it out from the video but I'm quite well decorated and I've poked a lot of holes in myself over the years and there seemed to be a very good opportunity to um uh, you know Combine as it were business and pleasure, uh, you know, to try and write something accessible but academic about something I've been interested in. Um, Ginger and I had exchanged emails some time prior because, being a geeky sort of nerdy person, I look at what people are doing on the internet, what research they're doing, and stuff like that. And sometimes I write fan mails for people who I think are doing something interesting and challenging and novel, and. Usually they don't reply, but Ginger actually replied. My goodness me. Um, um, You know, she just seemed like a a, a very suitable person to work with, because as you can see, I'm, as they say, pale, male and stale. Uh, You know, so... uh, I'm particularly interested in the contribution of of, of of younger scholars and people who are a little bit more politically correct than I am, um, you know, because uh, because I'm, I'm you know perhaps a little you know I'm well into my sixties now, and no matter how hard I try, I get a little bit old-fashioned. Um, so so that was how I started. Um, I beg your pardon. I don't want to hog the conversation. Um, uh, Ginger, do you want to chip in?
3: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I'll kind of uh, piggyback of, off of that and just first say that when I received this email called fan mail as a uh, PhD student in the throes of studying for comprehensive exams and feeling like I could do nothing right, your email like made my life basically, and then. I remember fast forward to like, I think it was probably my first or second semester, or maybe even, no, I think it was the first semester as a professor. I, you know, was even thinking one week, like, oh my gosh, I wonder what that, what Brown is doing, Um, you know, what he's up to. And um, a couple of weeks later after that, I received this email from Brown saying, asking if I want to be part of a fun project. Um, And you had never said book, but I like, so I thought it was just going to be an article about body art. And then I saw the word count and I was like, oh, what, how long is 40,000 words? And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. This is a book length project. And so um, I had never sociologically conducted studies about body art before, but it's something I was always wanting to write about because I too am heavily decorated as Brown said. And so this was a great opportunity to channel some of that personal interest on a topic I hadn't yet gotten to research into a book project that sought to make body art and health a topic that's very appropriate like for the general like a book that's appropriate for the general audience and the public for healthcare practitioners and academics alike anyone can pick up this book and just read through it it's a fairly short read Uh, it uses you know, accessible language, it still has some of those academic terms that will spark the interest of the curious academic as well.
2: Yeah. And, you know, it also, I think, normalizes body art, uh, whether it be tattooing or piercing. Um, I I remember uh, a time not long ago when uh, deviant uh, behavior textbooks would have a chapter specifically for things like body art suggesting that body art can only be deviant and must be taboo right um but but you're saying in this book is i think that that the industry is moving from the uh, outside from the boundaries to more of a of a center of society um how, how are you finding it to do
1: so Well, that's an interesting movement. Yes, you're quite right. Usually when the social sciences have looked at body art, they've seen it as some sort of a risk factor for offending behaviour, for uh, mental health problems, uh, for um, recreational drug use, you know, all those kinds of things. Uh, And... As body art has become much more popular, particularly in places like Europe and the United States, um, in some ways that view is now, I think, rather old-fashioned. Even so, you still find quite a lot of people in psychology, psychiatry, and the health professions who who see uh, permanent body decoration as being rather you know, being something that, that well, you know, kind of nice people don't do, and it must indicate that there's something wrong with them. Um, and yet one of the things that we say in the book is using Pierre Bourdieu's sociology, um, in some ways you can see body art as almost a person investing in their personal capital, building a kind of, of, of body capital, making the body more interesting, it doesn't have to be the same body that you, as it were, born with. It's something that you can enhance and augment. The other thing that's happening is there's a lot of researchers looking at the role of body art as marking life course way markers, I suppose you could call them, significant birthdays, having children, graduating from high school, graduating from college, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, Especially when researchers study women. Interestingly, there's quite a gender split. When when uh, women show up in uh, body art uh, literature, academic literature, they're always making meaning. You know, they're healing, they're recovering, they're marking their life course. Uh, interestingly enough, people haven't investigated boys and men's experience in quite the same way, usually. And again, if you see a highly decorated male, then yes you know high risk for gang membership and gang affiliation uh they're likely to be at risk for offending behavior or maybe they're already in prison or they soon will be uh maybe they're far right affiliated you know all those kinds of things so uh the way the academic community has looked at body art so far it's a bit like sugar and spice and all things nice versus slugs and snails and puppy dogs tails.
3: Yeah, I I think that's a that's that's a really apt observation, and um, that we and especially Brown took forward in like researching the literature for for this book. And I want to add that importantly, while we we are seeing the shift from margin to center, there is still very much margins even uh, in the acceptability of body art. You know, we've seen things like the rise of presence of body art on social media. Um, as well as in um, different television shows based around body art. Um, they've been increasingly more accepted in society, like within limits. So it's almost like, you know, while, something like tattoos on this like on the arms and legs are kind of commonplace and acceptable. there is this still kind of realm of marginalization for things like, face tattoos or even hand tattoos uh, that are affectionately referred to as job stoppers in uh, the tattoo uh, industry and field. So, um, you know, it's really interesting, too, to note that some of these locations of tattoos that are still sort of taboo, like facial tattoos, for instance, um, found, you know, had have significant cultural sacred meanings in indigenous culture. So that kind of plays to the different kind of uh race racism kind of embedded into these different fields, much like society as a whole.
2: So that's what I was going to that's what I was going to think of as the intersections, right? When we as sociologists think about um, you know, the have and have nots, we we have to think beyond just a single um idea of tattoos, but how does it affect people at the margins and uh uh, I think there might also be something to say about you know age and tattoos and and as well as uh te- as well as body piercings right and when is it acceptable to have a tattoo or a piercing and oh are you, is that person too old to get that well uh yep
3: Yes absolutely I think there is something to be said about age as well um you know uh a lot of a lot of <laughs> issues related to the aging of skin for instance with body art and piercing and elasticity of the skin uh often kind of proves to be a barrier in getting uh the design that uh skin that the uh older older folks might want right so it kind of you know the the changing skin skin limits it but it's also not just physical but it's also the social dimension of what skin we prioritize working with and we'd set as the default and then everyone who falls outside of that is either harder to tattoo or pierce. So, you know, old uh, people who are older, people of color, right, Um, and other populations as well are kind of uh, marginalized in this field of body art. Yeah. Anything you'd like to add, Brown?
1: Yes. Well, I suppose there's uh... People, you know, that generation of people who've started exploring body art, perhaps particularly in the 80s and 90s, are, are growing older. Um, having tattoos or indeed, in some cases, piercings as an older person isn't quite so unusual. And people are pushing the boundaries of acceptability in many workplaces as well. Uh, in a sense, I'm lucky because I work in university. So, um, you know, I can get away with going around looking like this. In fact, um until a few years ago, I looked even more alternative because um, all my hair's fallen out now, you know, stress and male pattern baldness and all that kind of thing. But, uh, but you know, I used to have dreadlocks as well. Um, now, maybe if I'd been a sensible middle-aged man in a suit, I would have got on faster in my career. But I don't really know because I don't have a control group to compare myself with. So uh, that's really and And, uh, and also... Um, My partner, Xylia, who's actually from South Carolina on your side of the pond, uh, is a little older than me. And she's been acquiring more and more tattoos as she's got older. Um, And she looks splendid. Um, So I think also then people's aesthetic judgments are, are changing. Uh, both amongst those with tattoos and amongst people who admire them uh you know it's not inappropriate to uh, have tattoos as an older adult now
2: So one of the things I think that we're getting at here is um is looking at capital and and what do tattoos and and body piercing say about uh, about the capital that a person has or lacks in I, I, is there a symbolic me- symbolic meaning behind body art, and uh, how that how that contributes symbolically to to the capital, whether it be cultural or economic or human or social capital that a person um, is either hoping to maintain or uh, or has as it as they determine what tattoos to get
1: or not to get? Oh, well, would you like to have a go first, Ginger?
3: Oh gosh. Okay, I was, I, I was, I was wondering if you wanted to kick it off first, but I'm happy to like at least take take a stab at it. Um, no tattoo pun or piercing pun intended there. Um, but yeah. So I mean, if you think about the ways in which uh, tattoos can kind of comprise a sort of capital, if you think about you know, Bourdieu's conceptualization of, of capital, it's it's accumulated labor. And so is the case with tattoos, right? There's a lot of, you know, time, money and labor uh, and effort that goes into um, giving and receiving the tattoo, right? Um, it, it does fall in line with what we think about with um, how Bourdieu kind of conceptualized things like bodily capital and physical capital. And of course, like embodied cultural capital, um, these are different aesthetic qualities. It becomes an aesthetic quality of our bodies that allows us to kind of make social connections and networks a currency to kind of build this social support, to gain status or admiration, things like that. Um, Or even simply like, you know, it's a means to get to build social networks and attention on social media, or or simply even just being a way of expressing yourself. That's the kind of way that this capital is used as well to get that personal satisfaction or meaning or or purpose um and so yes how would you like to build on that brown well, well, i, I think
1: what's, what's happened in let us say the last 30 or 40 years is in the early days, that capital was often very localized within perhaps a particular subculture or gang or group of people, you know, kids who are into heavy metal music or people who were bikers or um, people who were part of that uh, group of people who styled themselves modern primitives around you know, such luminaries as Fakir Muzafer and Doug Malloy and so on in California through the 70s and, and, and 80s um now uh with uh now that if you will body artists become mainstream in a number of countries it's a much more widely shared capital it's a much more widely shared aesthetic Um. the other thing that we're seeing uh perhaps particularly in the last 10 20 years is that people you know i mentioned the idea of body art as a kind of life course way marker uh people uh having tattoos as part of their recovery from illness. Uh, You know, there's a whole genre of tattooing, a whole genre of academic literature emerging around it uh, about tattoos marking recovery from cancer. Uh, For example, people who've had breast cancer having, rather than reconstructive surgery, uh, having tattoos instead. Uh, Or sometimes as well as reconstructive surgery. Um, You know, the sense that here is something that I can control, something I can choose, something I can feel good about and feel like I'm making myself better. Uh, If you're a cancer patient, you're often very much on the medical conveyor belt and feel, you know, I know we go on about informed consent and all that kind of thing. But sometimes it feels that your destiny is in the hands of others when you're on the medical conveyor belt. Um, But, uh, um, you know, having that tattoo or what have you uh, is a way of, if you will, reclaiming your life. Uh, And in a sense, that is a, a, a new kind of capitalization of the body through body art.
3: Oh, yeah, I love I love how you put that. And, um, you know, also, if you get, actually, I wanted to mention too, with the uh you know mastectomy tattoos as well not only do they do different designs like flowers and butterflies across the scars for instance but different tattoo artists will offer free um tattoos resembling realistic nipples on the breasts after mastectomy to kind of give that control over one's body and that that liberation from the cancer treatment as much as possible kind of to what brown was alluding to also tattoos of different like awareness ribbon colors or, you know, even the spoon tattoos, um, you know, is it, that's a big symbol of being part of a chronic illness community based off of the spoon theory uh, by Christine um, who likened the amount of energy one has during the day to the amount of spoons one has. And so now the spoon is this instant indication that, oh, you're one of me, you're also dealing with chronic illness or disability and so that it like gains you that instant entree into that network of chronic illness um people with chronic illnesses or disabilities so yes
1: yes and I think where where it relates to illness there's something even more interesting going on particularly with the so-called contested illnesses where um, often Researchers, academics, health professionals are rather sceptical of people's com- claims of uh, ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, uh, and so on. You know, the tiredness, aches and pains. Um, sometimes people refer to these as exercise intolerance syndromes. Now, these are interesting illnesses because a lot of the pressure to socially constitute these as medical objects has come from the sufferers themselves. Has come from lay people. Um, You know, you find with a lot of medicine, a lot of illness, uh, you know, all these illnesses that are named after the first doctor who described them um, rather than the first patient. Uh, Whereas this kind of thing is going the other direction. Uh, It's people not only lobbying health professionals and researchers to take their concerns and complaints seriously, uh, but also um, marking, capitalising their bodies in this way to signal that well, I've got fibromyalgia, I've got um, ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, those kinds of things. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it's a kind of, of of self-help solidarity.
3: Yes, that solidarity where they can't find that same legitimacy from not only doctors but the general public who look for this medical knowledge as the ultimate authority, right? And when they see that this is a diagnosis that's contested, well you know, you're not likely to get that same support as you were for like a an illness that might not be as contested. And so body art around this subject can bring to can really further strengthen the bonds within these groups, right? Uh, It's like, you know, which diagnoses are taken seriously versus not the pain and the symptoms are still the experience is still just as harrowing. So any kind of unity that this art can bring together in these communities uh, is very valued and a very trusted form of capital. Yes. Yes. And in
1: some ways, many of these conversations are conversations about knowledge, about how different social groups are curating, developing and deploying knowledge in different ways. And also, who gets a seat at the metaphorical or actual conference table? Whose knowledge gets to prevail? Um, Who gets to decide how resources are deployed? Who gets to decide what goes into policy and legislation? And so people talk about things like social epistemology, epistemic justice, uh, epistemic domination, and so on. We don't go on about this much in the book, but, you know, we... We talk a bit about Borgia and bodily capital and stuff like that, but um, I'm getting more and more interested in social epistemology as I get older uh, because you know I'm, I'm fascinated about the ways in which people deploy knowledge. And I think perhaps um, the solidarities to do with marking a particular illness or condition or recovery from an illness or condition through body art uh, are, are absolutely fascinating because it says something about... You know kind of how i conceptualize my place in the world
3: exactly yes i mean just giving a real quick example like of some you know i i, hate, I don't like the phrase me search but like you know my own stories with body art as someone with uh, endometriosis and adenomyosis um my tattoos were a sign of again that reclamation of control over art on my body versus lack of control over the surgeon's scalpel, uh, for instance. And so getting those first yellow roses on my abdomen over some of my surgical scars just felt so freeing. So um, yes, thank you for that question, Michael.
2: Yeah, and you know this is starting to make me think of people like Howard S. Becker and uh, about uh, art worlds and things like. I mean, this is an art world in itself, and and the the labeling that is associated with the different symbols and and, and how those uh, can be outwardly used to um uh, to as a marker to say, okay, who who am I like and who am I not and. It also, I think, would empower the uh, beholder of that art to be able to to talk intelligently, as Brown was talking about, uh, who has a, a spot at the at the round table to talk about this and to uh, and for knowledge to be able to emerge uh, organically at that table without anybody necessarily having to have an MD or a PhD, but to be able to share their own personal experience and to create a knowledge base from their own personal experiences.
3: Yes. Yep. Talking of embodied knowledge. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Right. Sorry. We're just agreeing with you here. Uh, try, try another question.
0: <laughs> no
2: boy. I, I think that this has been uh, a wonderful conversation. I am looking through the questions that that I had listed down uh, uh, for today, and, and I think that I've made it through all of those. Um, however, I I I think that uh, some of would be worth we're ending our conversation on today would be so what do you hope for audience members to do once they go and pick up your book and what do you hope for them to to get out of this do you have any um any call to movement or call to action that you would have
1: for for the readers and listeners today well it's invited for me a number of interesting areas that we don't really talk about in the, where academics have studied body art. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there's a great deal of stuff being done about women making meaning, uh, commemorating things like birthdays and graduations and recovery from illnesses and their children's birthdays. You know, lots of, of, of uh, kind of, sometimes rather cutesy family themes in there. On the other hand, uh, men's experience of undergoing body art, there's not a huge amount of that. Um, uh, Men as a group tend to be seen in relation to body art as people at risk, at risk of gang affiliation, at risk of offending behaviour, of uh, drug or drink problems, of uh, unsavory politics, you know, all that kind of thing. Uh, Nobody's really got inside that experience. Uh, And yet we know that, you know, kind of there's an awful lot of men with an awful lot of tattoos. Um, So, you know, what are they doing? What does it all mean? And, and something that... Uh, actually, I can't claim credit for this. This is Ginger's idea. Um, one of the things that you don't see very much in the literature is stuff out the experience of body artists themselves. With all this body art, more and more people are trying to, uh, pun intended, scratch a living as um, as tattooists or, or, uh, or body artists of, in one way or another. Um, but uh, as... Sorry, I'll hand over to Ginger. You say a bit about some of the stuff you wrote about the uh, the body artist's experience.
3: Yes, absolutely. I do want to say to just give a shout out to a couple of my colleagues who have really started uh, kicking back off this um research on body artists like david lane um william Force, and there's a new book coming out soon from stanford university press for my colleague uh dustin dustin Kiskadon, uh called blood and lightning on becoming a tattooer and he um got during his phd career he actually became a tattoo artist and bases his dissertation and his book on this research um so there's work being done um but there isn't a whole lot of excellent research on um, the health and well-being of body artists, especially physical health. Um, You don't see a lot of even health research on the wear and tear of the body that tattoo artists and other body artists experience over time. Arguably in an industry that isn't the most like strictly regulated and um, where health insurance might not be as much of a given, you combine that with the fact that body artists arguably need are in more need of healthcare services and health insurance in the US, it kind of uh puts body artists in a sort of vulnerable position and and like kind of creates a sort of health disparity, right? Where they're not getting the proper physical health care they need, to say nothing of the different um mental and emotional challenges of and in well being in the body art industry that has largely operated in a very closed manner, um, where training involves an apprenticeship uh, under the supervision of a veteran artist, um, how discrimination still exists for um, women and femme tattoo artists, artists of color, and uh, queer and trans artists as well. So, yes, I think that more attention to the health and well being of body artists, especially. In this realm where social media constitute as much of a job as actually putting ink into the skin or giving the piercings themselves, um, we need to do more to uh, understand the health and well being of body artists.
1: Yes, so there's two topics that uh, I think. Uh, would be very interesting if anybody wants to do their PhD in this sort of field, uh, or people seeking to carve out a research profile for themselves. Um, And that's two areas that are hitherto underexplored. Uh, So it would be nice to see people being prompted to do a little bit more work on this. Um, So that's two other things um i think also uh i don't not quite sure who might read this book uh because it's in an arts for health series i think perhaps people like art therapists and and the creative therapies people in you know notice there's an appetite for this kind of thing amongst people like nurses perhaps less so medical doctors but they are getting interested in a few in a few cases um It's to do with the way they see their patients and clients, to see these kinds of things, body art that people bring to the consultation or the therapy session, um, not as a problem, but perhaps more as a creative asset. Um, Something to begin interesting therapeutic conversations And again, this is not unknown. People are starting to do this and it is starting to be recommended in some of the literature that we review. But again, that's in its infancy. And it would be nice to see uh, people's engagement with body art be a source of therapeutic solidarity uh, rather than being typified as somebody who's a bundle of risk factors.
3: Oh, my gosh, it's such a great way of phrasing it um well you're so I, kind
1: to me <laughs> it's <amazing. laughs> oh wait,
3: wait like what was the exact phrasing again I forget I forget already it's like slipped out oh, of
1: Michael's recorded it we can listen to it again a, later on a bundle of risk factors
3: remember. this is great um mm-hmm. I wanted to add to um there's another author who is a sociologist who's doing great work on specifically the experience of women tattoo artists as well it's um uh oh my gosh why am I blanking on her name I Cut this part out. I want to make sure I'm getting the name right. Um, Beverly U.N. Thompson. I almost wanted to call her Barbara, but it's Beverly because I'm just terrible with names. But she does a lot of excellent work on women tattoo artists and women and tattoos generally. Um, and I wanted to say, too, I just, um, just another personal anecdote. It's so interesting. I've had a number of surgeries. It's always so interesting to see the different ways uh, that surgeons address my tattoos, because again, some of them are on the abdomen. Sometimes they, they're they like, oh, we I will respect you by just not even going near your tattoos. I will find a place to cut that is not near your tattoos. But recent, my most recent surgery doc, from Dr. Devin Garza up in Austin, he said, no, I'm actually going to put the incisions in the line as a tattoo. And then that way when it heals, there's not another scar. And so it's really interesting to see the changing ways in which medical providers are engaging with body art on their patients and how they have come to, at least in my view, show even more increased respect uh, for the body art of their patients. I'll always get a nice word from a doctor or nurse on um, my more visible tattoos, you know, if they happen to see them. And it's a great conversation piece to help keep patients calm, maybe in stressful situations, too. So, yes, absolutely. That's uh what I wanted to add. Oh, I
2: was going to say, I think it's important to uh. Uh, that uh, tattooing has become has is becoming more of something that is uh, normalized rather than something that it was seen as more of like a night night knife, night life activity. You know the old joke would would be something along the lines of I went to Vegas and I have a tattoo to to show for it. Uh, well, like a nightlife activity that you do when you go out with a drunken group of friends and and get them. Not that that doesn't happen anymore, but. That it, that it is also something to identify, uh, identify oneself with a, uh, with a group of, of people based on some sort of a medical illness or, uh, or military or, or, you know, a variety of other tattoos that would associate a person
1: with the, with a group of people. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. I think it,
1: um sorry, you go first.
3: <laughs> oh, I just wanted to say that it's interesting that, you know, we do tend to th- there is that historical view that associates getting a tattoo with recklessness or impulsivity, right? And how now we are seeing a shift to a lot more thoughtfulness and planning. But it goes to show too how like, you know, we pathologize these different characteristics of impulsivity and um, you know, and not thinking things through as something that is inherently bad, so to speak, and then how the tattoo is an outward manifestation or evidence of that um, deviance. So that's what I wanted to say. Go ahead, Brown.
1: Yeah, uh, but I think that's that's interesting. It's similar to what I was going to say I'd noticed is the kind of motivational story that people tell has changed once upon a time if you were to go back say 40 years well why have you got a tattoo oh well it's because i got drunk one night or it was my 18th birthday and i was with a bunch of friends and and uh, you 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 kind of um bracket off that period in your life and say it was somehow inexplicable inexplicable or caused by alcohol or the company that you were keeping uh, whereas as we've remarked, it's much more common now to get a more elaborated and personally meaningful motivational story, uh, commemorating life course way markers of, of different kinds, uh, commemorating family life, children's names and birthdays, commemorating graduations, you know, all these kinds of things that are personally significant and legitimate, um, rather than saying, oh no, it wasn't me, it was the drink. Well,
2: yeah, even so much so that I'm hearing stories of mothers and daughters getting tattoos together now and fathers and sons instead of, oh, my goodness, you got that tattoo or how am I going to hide this tattoo when I go home for Thanksgiving? Right. But instead sharing the experience of tattooing uh, across generations.
3: I also think it's I just see more and more often now on social media with body artists I follow, especially tattoo artists, how they um, they're often it's a field sometimes that your family might not understand you going into but increasingly on social media i see stories of uh tattoo artists who just are so thrilled because you know they'll post like i had the the honor of tattooing my mom or dad for the first time and um uh, giving them their first tattoo and um my one of my favorite artists I'll remember, i uh rachel beam up in philadelphia uh, she got to give her dad a tattoo, I believe, and it was such a special moment of bonding and sharing that memory together. And so that's something I'm seeing more often now too.
1: Yeah, so these are now things that kind of bring families together uh, rather than drive them apart.
3: Yes, exactly. Hmm. That's a great way of putting it too. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, So, so we are seeing a whole new vocabulary of motives as Burke might have called it, uh, were he alive today, uh, we're seeing a whole new uh, panoply of, of, of social relationships, which may be occasioned or enhanced or deepened through body art. And I think, you know, for anybody in sociology or elsewhere in the social sciences, this has got to be profoundly interesting.
3: Oh, yes, absolutely. And I think to, you know this is a great book for people who are simply, they might be interested in body art or like they might not understand it, right? So a lot of my relatives, you know, who might be older older than me or who might be a little bit more uh, politically or religiously conservative, who, you know, might not have previously understood why I chose to get a tattoo if they pick up this book, you know, they might at least find some of the, the stuff interesting and they might understand a little bit more about why people um find this to be so beneficial to their physical and mental well being.
2: Yes. I would agree. As I read through this book, it was very accessible to a to a general audience. And while as you said, Ginger, there's there are there are some jargon words in there. Uh however, uh, you know, a quick reference to a dictionary will will help you work through that a sociology dictionary, preferably because it'll give you the right <laughs> the right definition instead of the Merriam definition. But uh um I, I think there's uh, readily accessible for anybody um, who is interested in learning more about potty art. Uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time for our conversation today on New Books and Sociology. However, it was a great honor and pleasure to have you both on the show, Virginia and Brown. And thank you for being here today. Thank
3: you so much oh, for incredible. having us. Thank you.
2: <laughs> Again, this has been a, another episode of New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network.
0: Have a great day.